0: Hey, it's time for the kids to come on up front and have a seat here. Come on up, find a spot to sit. All right, good to see everyone. Come on up, find a spot to sit, squeeze in there. All right, Eva, would you come up here for a second? All right, so come on right over here. I have a secret to tell you, okay, and I want you to keep the secret for now. Don't tell anybody for now. Can you keep a secret? Can you? Can you keep a secret? Do you know what a secret is? Okay. I can tell you a secret, okay? Got it? Can you remember that? Okay, thanks. You can sit down. Don't tell anyone. You can go sit down. Thanks. All right. So she has a secret. All right. I uh, need somebody else. Let's see. Um, okay, come on up. All right. Give her some space to come on up. Squeeze through your, all right, good. All right, I have a gift to give you, okay? But the gift is in this box, all right? You can have the gift, but it's in that box. You're right, it's locked. How are you going to get that gift? How are you going to get it? You don't have the key, hmm. Well, what if, let me ask you this, what if somebody had a secret that would help you get that gift? Would you want to know that secret? All right, anybody have a secret that could help her get the gift? You ready to tell your secret? I do. It's up there. So the key is in the basket on the piano. You want to go check it out? Ooh. All right. See if it opens it. We'll see. There's a gift in there. It's coming. It's coming. Be patient. It's coming. There's something in there. Bubbles. Yeah, everybody loves bubbles, right? All right, good. So she found her gift. Good. Everybody can sit down. Okay, here we go. So listen. Yeah, she gets to keep it. I told her it was for her, right? Yeah, she gets it. All right, now listen here. The Bible tells us about a different kind of secret, the Bible tells us about a different kind of secret. We've been uh, going through First Corinthians, right? And there we've learned about that we've learned that God's wisdom is far above any of our wisdom, right? God, His wisdom, His smarts, He has way more smarts than we have, right? He's way wiser. And we learned the fact that Jesus came of salvation, and God's plan of salvation is the gospel, right? The fact that Jesus came and went to the cross to die for sin and was raised to life again right? And that's God's wisdom. This isn't something that we could have come up with and figured out on our own, right? We've been learning about that. In fact, the Bible, you know what the Bible calls the gospel? The Bible calls it, it says that it's hidden. It says that it's a mystery. In other words, the gospel is a secret, right? It's a secret. So let me ask you this. If the gospel is a secret that we couldn't figure out on our own, how do we know it? How do we know that it's true? We not in his word, right? We read that in the Bible. But the Bible also says that God has revealed it to us. He's shown that to us by his Holy Spirit, right? Do you know who the Holy Spirit is? God. God, that's right. The Holy Spirit is part of God, part of the Trinity, right? We just sang about three in one, didn't we? I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son, that's Jesus. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is God, Right? And so part of the ministry, part of the work that the Holy Spirit does is to reveal truth to us and to help us to understand truth, to help us understand the gospel. And so because the Holy Spirit does that, so we're able to know the gospel and to understand the gospel, and therefore we're also able to believe the gospel and be saved. So that's part of what the Holy Spirit does. Pastor Nate's going to come and he's going to teach us a little more. So you can go back and have a seat and keep listening, okay? Thanks for coming up.
1: Thanks, for... thanks Pastor Jeff. Well, good morning. good morning. For those of you who might not know who I am, uh, my name is Nate, and I currently serve here as the pastor of music and youth, um, and I do want to give a special thanks to the youth band this morning. Um, go ahead and give them a thank Thank you. Um, and we even have students who are helping us on slides and on the sound uh, soundboard this morning. And so uh, it's just such a great opportunity for me. You know, it, it felt appropriate uh, since I was preaching this Sunday to have the youth band. Um, and as Andrea said, uh, she's been working with the band for the past couple of years to get them to a place where they could do this. And so it's a great encouragement to both of us to actually see this uh, become a reality and see students step into, into leadership in this way. Um, As most of you already know, uh, my time with this church community is coming to an end at the end of next month. Uh, Just so you're aware, as of right now, my last Sunday here officially will be May 20th. um, And so this morning will be the last time that I will be preaching from this pulpit. Um, It's really been a joy to serve this community for the past three years And uh, it is my prayer and hope that you all will continue to grow in your love for Christ after we are gone. And so um, we came here, when we came here, it was because of our love for this church, our desire to see it flourish, and that desire has only grown since we've been here. And so, uh, and that desire extends this morning as I preach, um, my desire is that you will grow in your love for Christ. So I will be continuing in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, wrapping up chapter 2. But before we get into the passage, I want to give a quick overview of where this passage is in the book. I find it's always helpful when I'm studying to anchor a passage in its larger context. And so even though we've been going through uh, all of these chapters up to this point, I just want to recap a little bit where we've been and where this, this passage is situated Um, The first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians are focused on encouraging the Corinthian church to be unified. Um, He's addressing divisions in the community. And so he explains why he's bringing up this issue, saying that the church is dividing into factions, uh, centering around which apostle or preacher that they like the best, Paul, Apollos, or Peter. Uh, The church had been aligning themselves with different preachers and leaders and then badmouthing those who disagreed with them and it was tearing the church apart. And then in the passage that follows right after, um, in in chapter 3, Paul repeats this challenge to the church. He says that you are not mature, um, and don't give in to this temptation to divide over preachers. Instead, center yourselves on Christ and Christ alone. And so that's where this passage is. Uh, It's solidly sandwiched between these two, two passages about not playing favorites with leaders. And so we'll come back to that in a moment, but uh, for now, let's go ahead and look at our passage for this morning. So if you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we will start in verse 6. So 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. But Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. for They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Would you pray with me? So God, we come to you this morning needy and dependent on your words of wisdom to give us life and direction. So we ask that you would teach all of us this morning by your Spirit and through your Word. Amen. So as I said, this passage is marked on either side by Paul's critique of the church with regards to which apostle they liked best. And what I love about what Paul does here is how much he decentralizes himself. He works hard to keep himself out of the center of the church's faith. Uh, The Jewish religious leaders of that day, as I'm sure many of you know, were often criticized in Scripture and by Jesus himself for centralizing themselves. They made themselves the center. They had all the power. They centralized themselves in the religious community. And they used Scriptures and tradition to oppress people, to build up their own power and authority, and they lorded it over those common people. And so Paul is going to great lengths to avoid this. Um, He even thanks God in in chapter 1, verse 14 that he didn't baptize very many people in the church because then if he had, they would have cause to boast that I was baptized by Paul. And he doesn't want that. Um, And then he emphasizes that God has shown his incredible wisdom, a wisdom that is complete foolishness, a wisdom of God becoming man and dying on a cross save sinners from death, This wisdom has been given to the unwise, to the powerless, the lower-class citizens of this church in Corinth. God chose these people, the low, despised, uneducated people, to demonstrate the full power of his gospel. And then when Paul came to preach the gospel to them, he he explains in the first part of this chapter, chapter 2, that he didn't do so very well. He didn't do so winsomely. He wasn't eloquent or confident. Excuse me. He was plain, simple, stumbling over his words, fearful and weak. And yet it was by the power of God's spirit that through Paul's pathetic preaching, people were saved. All this is so that their faith wouldn't be on Paul, but in the power of God. And so let's look at these verses a little bit closer, starting in verse 6. He says, Among the mature, we, impart wisdom, uh, we do impart wisdom, not of the sage or of the rulers of the sage." Uh, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So a few comments I want to make on these verses. First, I find it really interesting that Paul seems to be making a distinction between maturity and human wisdom. Uh, I think what Paul has in mind here when he talks about the wisdom of this age, as has already been talked about, it's, it's our capability of understanding. It's our cleverness, our ability to articulate lofty concepts. And so, in other words, it's our intelligence. And so what Paul is doing here is intelligence and maturity are not the same thing. Intelligence and maturity are not the same thing. Um, in fact, the word that gets translated here as mature actually just means whole or complete. It's the exact same word that gets translated as perfect in other verses, such as Matthew 5.48, where Jesus tells us, to be perfect as God is perfect. It's the same word. Um, And so I don't think it's talking about moral purity uh, or without flaws as much uh, as as we often think of this word. I think it means full, complete, to be lacking nothing. And so, uh, again, this kind of maturity doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. True maturity is having access to God's wisdom through his spirit. That's what true maturity is. And when we have God's spirit inside of us, we are whole and complete as we were designed to be. We are made perfect through his spirit. I also did a little bit of a word study on this word ruler to see what Paul might have had in mind here. And uh, he mentions in verse 8 that the rulers crucified the Lord of glory, which makes me think he's thinking a, a little more specifically of Jewish religious rulers or leaders. And in fact, when I was looking at this word, the majority of the places where this word shows up, it's referring to Jewish leaders. And so I think it's safe to say that Paul certainly has them in mind, uh, religious authority in mind when he's using this word. And so the irony of what he, he's getting at in, those, uh, in this passage is that those who put themselves in positions of spiritual authority and use that to control people, uh, those rulers who claim to have God's wisdom who insist you have to access God through their understanding of him, it is these people who have understood God's wisdom the least. Uh, If they actually had access to God's wisdom, they would not have murdered him on a cross. That's what Paul is saying here. And so Paul and the other apostles are imparting a different kind of wisdom, and part of that wisdom is trying to get people to not focus on him, on Paul. He's emphasizing the importance of the gospel not the importance of himself or even his preaching. And he emphasizes this wisdom only comes by God's Spirit, and this Spirit is available for all people. Let's keep moving through the passage. Verse 9, As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So there's a quotation here in verse 9 from Isaiah 64. It's not an exact quotation, but it's very clear that Paul is thinking of Isaiah throughout this passage, and he's thinking of Isaiah's vision for God's plan of redemption um, when he's quoting these passages. And so this is how the verse reads in Isaiah 64. It says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So no human being has ever really had any concept of God. No one can truly grasp who he is. Who can know what God is like? And even beyond that, who can understand what he's up to? Can the smartest theologian figure it out? Can the cleverest philosopher? If we don't take time here to ponder just how big God is, how immense he is, how unapproachable he is, how completely beyond our understanding he is, then we will not grasp how revolutionary it is when Paul says that that God has now revealed himself to us through his spirit. The unknowable God is knowable, which is incredible. That's incredible. So Paul goes on to explain more what he means by this in the next verses. He says in verse 11, who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So he says the only way to really understand someone is to get inside of their heads, to almost literally become them. Who can actually know what is going on inside another person unless somehow their inner workings, their inner spirit of that, that person can communicate to us and so that's exactly what's happening here god's spirit is communicating with us the very inner workings of the most unknowable being in all of existence is being offered to us and so paul has spent a lot of time to this point showing us that our best human attempts at reaching or understanding god are completely pathetic The smartest of us can't come close to scratching the surface of who God is and what he is like, but he doesn't leave it there. Paul doesn't just leave it there. He takes it a step further into something so radical and incomprehensible. He says something that, honestly, if we were to really think about it, we might be a little bit offended. (laughs) He's saying that anyone who has the Spirit has access to God's incredible and unknowable wisdom. It has nothing to do with status or education. It has nothing to do with how good you look or how put together you are. It has to do with whether or not you trust him. And this is something that the rulers and authorities of this world can't get a hold of. It's something that the brightest theologians, the best Christian writers, the most impressive pastors, and the greatest preachers can't give to you. It's something that is only accessed through God's Spirit, and that Spirit is being offered to anyone who is humble enough to take it. That's incredible. Let's keep reading, verse 13. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, the word natural here isn't referring to the physical, but actually the psychological. In fact, this is where we get the word psychological from. The original word that gets translated uh, is where we get the word psychology or psychological. Uh, So I think he's talking about, again, our own natural wisdom, a human wisdom that relies on our brains and our ability to figure it out for ourselves. So if you try and figure this out with your own human intuition, it just won't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Words and books and sermons could be preached on the wisdom of God, but that's not how we understand spiritual truths. We understand spiritual truths by relying on God and by trusting in him and by receiving his spirit. And then finally, the last couple of verses in this passage. A spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Uh, this verse describes to us what someone who has God's spirit is like. The word "judges" in this passage uh, is actually the same word in the previous uh, verse that gets translated as "discern." So, I think it has more to do with examining or interpreting things correctly. Um, it's not necessarily talking about like the judgment of God, how God judges sinners but how we can accurately discern and evaluate things for ourselves when we have God's Spirit inside of us. And then, he says, we don't need to stand under the weight of other people's discernment or assessment of us when we have God's Spirit. We don't have to stand under other people's judgments. We trust and obey God alone and don't need to worry about what others think think of us when we're following God. And then finally, I'd like to camp a little bit on this last verse. It's a short verse, verse 16. It has a lot packed into it. It says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So Paul again here refers back to Isaiah, indirectly quoting from a couple verses in chapter 40. Uh, The verses say, this is 13 and 14 in Isaiah 40, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is no one. Now, there are a couple of things worth pointing out about this. First of all, I think it's notable that Paul refers to Isaiah twice in this passage. I think he expects that we would have some working knowledge of the book of Isaiah and the passages he's quoting. And so my encouragement to you would be, if you really want to go deep with this passage, go and read the whole chapter of Isaiah 40. Uh, in fact, the, the chapter of Isaiah 40 parallels these verses really well and in some really striking ways. So Isaiah 40, if you don't remember, it starts by proclaiming comfort to God's people, and then it explains how God is making a way for all people to come to him. He's making a straight path, leveling it out to ensure that nothing stands in the way of his love. And then Isaiah reminds us in the chapter of how fragile and pathetic we are in comparison to God. He says that humans wither like flowers, but God and his word stand forever. And then uh, Isaiah tells people to go and spread the good news across the land, saying, here is your God coming in great power as a shepherd who gently carries a a sheep in his arms. I love that image. It's this perfect image of this incredibly powerful God interacting with people in such a a gentle and humble way, it's almost offensive. And so then Isaiah asks, who is like this God? Who taught him anything? Who has known his mind? And then he ends the chapter uh, in Isaiah 40 by reminding his readers that God has not abandoned them, that they only need to trust in him for their strength. Those who hope in the Lord will find great strength. They will rise up on eagles' wings. That's how the chapter ends. And so we see here again that spiritual maturity, true wisdom, true strength, is found in trusting God, not in our feeble human strength, and in trusting ourselves. And so, who has n- understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, First Corinthians says, but we have the mind of Christ. I want to look at this last phrase here, we have the mind of Christ. There are actually two other passages that I want to look at quickly, um, other places where Paul has written in similar ways to this passage. And the first passage is connected to this phrase, the mind of Christ. Uh, This phrase immediately reminded me of Philippians 2. In Philippians, Paul asks his readers to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, and then this is how he explains what the mind of Christ looks like. Philippians 2, starting in verse 2. He, He tells the Philippian church to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count, others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but humbled himself emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming and so obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so notice with this passage, it's also built on a command to pursue unity with each other. Humility and selflessness are expected. And then you have Christ, who though he was himself God, did not think of his godness as something to be grasped. Now, there are many different ways that this word could be interpreted, this word grasp, but I think it has this idea of... of thinking important of it, of lording it over someone. So Christ's godness was not something that he felt he needed to use against us. He didn't lord it over us. He didn't use the spiritual authority to manipulate us or to prove that he was smarter than we are. Godly wisdom is shown most perfectly through Christ in this passage. He emptied himself, became a human servant, and then died a brutal and shameful death on a cross. And this is God's strange, foolish wisdom. And it's foolishness to the authorities and powers of this world because Christ did not use his authority to abuse us, but he laid it down to save us through his death. And so Paul encourages the Corinthians, don't elevate us as preachers and apostles. Don't make a preacher or a pastor the center of your faith. Because not only do you miss Christ when you do that, but you miss the whole way in which Christ leads us. Christ laid down his power and authority. He laid down his life to save us and show us what it means to be mature. And so if a preacher or a pastor takes up authority and power to use it against the people, if someone like me points to my own cleverness, my own wisdom, rather than pointing to the completely upside-down wisdom of Christ then I am not only standing in the way of Christ, but I am actively working against him. And so I realize how ironic it is for me to preach on this passage. Paul's saying, "It's, it's not about my preaching, it's about Jesus. Make Jesus the center. And here I am preaching. And so if you or I walk away from this morning thinking more about how good or bad my sermon was, then we've missed the point of this passage entirely. It's not about how well or poorly I preach this. It shouldn't be about my preaching at all for you or for myself. It's all about Christ and him alone. And so if you walk away this morning loving Christ more, then you have succeeded immensely in being a good Christian. Love Jesus and make him your center. And then the other passage that I'm reminded of in this uh, is another place where Paul quotes from Isaiah 40 in Romans chapter 11. So Paul has just finished explaining how God used the rejection of the Jewish people to open up the gospel for uh, people of all backgrounds to come to God. And so in Romans 11, he ends this chapter, he's so overwhelmed by how incredible and strange God's wisdom is that he writes a poem. He ends it with a poem and he quotes from multiple places in the Old Testament. And so he says this in Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. But he doesn't end there. He continues in chapter 12 with a command. He says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you hear some of the same language? Any similar themes or ideas here? So I think this passage helps us understand a little bit more what it means to receive God's Spirit, what it means to be spiritually wise and mature. Don't go with the patterns of this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your minds. And God is the one who renews our minds that we can have spiritual discernment through his spirit. And then offer yourselves completely as a daily living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. This doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. This isn't about how many degrees you have or what great, a great preacher you might be listening to, or maybe are, or a theologian or whatever. It's, It's about daily committing yourself to God. It's about trust. That is godly wisdom. And so how do we apply this passage practically? Well, I think one of the most obvious ways to challenge ourselves with something like this is how we play favorites with preachers and pastors. I really like certain preachers and dislike others. I like certain theologians and dislike others. And I'm often tempted to vilify or condemn people who disagree with me. As if God imparted to me, the truest theology, the most perfect understanding of the gospel, the world, and God himself. But how silly of me to think that I am somehow second only to Christ. And yet, especially those of you who are like me, who maybe are more theological, more intellectual, how prone we are to this belief. We may not say it or even recognize it directly, but if you're like me, you're tempted to elevate your way of thinking above other people's ways of thinking. And when we do this, we become deaf to the critiques and the challenges of others. We start to build echo chambers around ourselves. We only befriend people who think and act like us. And I will say to you this morning, this is not the mind of Christ. This is a natural mindset, a mindset that's plagued with divisions and pride. So don't do this. Fight against this temptation with everything you have. Follow Christ's example who, though people outright rejected and hated him, he died for their redemption. Now, we live in the age of the internet, which makes this conversation particularly fun. Uh, First of all, we have access to more preachers and teachers than any generation before us by far. Uh, which means we really have our pick of the litter. Um, We can just download a sermon from someone we like. We can align ourselves with famous pastors and preachers. And then we go to Facebook and argue about these things with other people without a second thought. We get a bit heated or defensive when someone disagrees with us. And so don't do this either. Um, And then let's hit this a little bit closer to home. Some of you like it better when I preach. Some of you like it better when Jeremy preaches. Some of you like Jeff the best. I want to challenge you with this. Do you ever find yourself excited when one of us is preaching on a Sunday morning and another isn't? Do you find yourself playing favorites with the sermons that are preached here at Pine Grove on Sunday morning? I think this happens a lot in churches, where there, especially where there's more than one pastor. Now we wouldn't say it this way, but it essentially boils down to, well, I follow Nate, and I follow Jeff, and I follow Jeremy. But is Christ divided? Did any of us die for your sins? (laughs) No. If we come to church with the mindset of what we're going to get out of it, of how moving the music is or how much we like it when so-and-so leads worship or how much we like this sermon but not that one, we're living in a natural mindset and have forgotten what it means to have the mind of Christ. And so I strongly urge you to continually orient your lives around Christ Not around us, not around this person or that, that preacher or that theologian. And if there are people in your life that you don't particularly like or agree with, the mind of Christ would have you lay down your life for them. So I'd like to end this morning by looking a little bit deeper, meditating a little bit longer on that last verse of the passage we're studying today. As I mentioned, Paul starts the verse by pointing out how unknowable God is, but he ends it by saying that we have the mind of Christ. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. So what is he really saying here? He's saying that we can know what's in God's head. We can know what's in his mind. And this is ridiculous. This is preposterous. It doesn't make any sense. And remember that he's talking to a community that he described uh, so graciously as not particularly wise or intelligent or influential or rich. These were presumably uneducated nobodies, and it is to these people that God reveals his wisdom. Just like the shepherds on the hillside when the angels announced Jesus' birth, just like the unknown Bethlehem girl who would become the mother of Christ. And just like the ugly, bow-legged murderer of Christians who became the Apostle Paul, God constantly thwarts our attempts to prop ourselves up and make ourselves important. And he continually delivers his wisdom and his revelation to the lowest people, not to the high and mighty. And as I said before, God does this even in religious communities. The Jewish leaders and rulers were the ones who missed God's wisdom the most. And it was the people that they oppressed, the people who were outcasts and rejects from society and from the religious community, these people were the ones who experienced God's glorious wisdom the most. And so this kind of passage really hits me square in the heart. It's probably the kind of it's passages like this that I probably wrestle with the most as a pastor and as someone with spiritual influence over other people. Sometimes it feels like I'm only one step away from being a Pharisee. And the tricky thing about Pharisees is that it's easy to assume I'm not like them because their issues are different than mine. I don't have the same problems. Then I start to realize that a lot of why Jesus spoke so harshly against them is because they were using religion and spirituality to lord it over other people, to oppress the poor and the outcast. And so I have to ask myself, am I doing the same thing? As an American pastor, I can have a lot of influence over others. The pastorate in our country is in many places still seen as a respectable position. And as someone who grew up in the church, uh, the fact that I became a pastor in my 20s quickly becomes a point of pride for me. Uh, Look how spiritually successful I am, and look how much power and influence I have. And yet, how contrary to the gospel is that mindset? How often am I working against the gospel, even when I say I'm working for it? And so that's what I love and I hate about passages like this. I love it because God is just not impressed with how much I've accomplished. And I hate that too. (laughs) He doesn't need me to be a pastor to accomplish his mission on the earth. He's already doing it. He's been doing it for centuries. He will do it for centuries after I'm gone through his spirit. And the question is, am I humble and dependent enough to join him? Or in my pride, will I work against him and in the end bring condemnation on myself? And so this is why I say if any of us walk away this morning only thinking about this sermon and how I preached it, then I think we've missed this passage completely. But if we come to church expecting to grow in our love for Christ, whether the sermon is great or not, whether the music is full of energy or not, whether the singing was in tune or not, then we're doing church right if we come Expecting to grow in our love for Christ. We're doing church right. And so my encouragement to you is to be amazed at how great and yet humble our God is. Marvel at how he powerfully scoops us up in his gentle arms as a shepherd. How he makes the way straight for us to come to him. And be astounded at how he tears down the proud and lofty and he elevates the poor and lowly. And then take that to heart, because that means the doorway into God's kingdom requires you to bow in humility in order to enter. And so may we all have faith like children, trusting wholly on Christ through his spirit. May we all have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, how we need you. We're desperate for you. And yet, how quickly we turn to our own ways, our own wisdom. So would you forgive us for trusting in ourselves, for thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. You offer us this incredible gift. You've given us access to your wisdom through your son, Jesus. Jesus, who did not take up his authority to abuse us, but leads us forward with his example of ultimate sacrifice. Laying aside his power, and his very life to redeem sinners like us. And so may we rejoice as we go from here that you have rescued us, that you have done what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.
2: And we'll close then with our benediction from Isaiah 40. Give me a moment to turn there. God, would you comfort your people? Would you speak tenderly to them as we go through this? God, would you uh, cause us to see your glory, to realize that we are grass, that we are like the beauty of the field that withers, the Lord blows on it, the flower fades, but you and your word will stand forever. And so God, would you get your people up to a high mountain to look upon you in Christ and behold you? Would you put your face upon them for good? God, would you come with might? Would you reward us? Would you tend us like a shepherd in this coming weeks? Would you gather us in your arms and carry and lead us? God, may we wait on you and you renew our strength. Would you mount us up like wings and eagles, that we would run and not be weary, that we would walk and not be faint. To God's glory, amen.